And I look at it and I could go, man, I could do it cheaper. I could do it faster. I could do it this, I could do it that, but I can't do it better, which means that I can't make as much money. Why would I do that? And it's a really, that's a tough thing for me as a, as a, as a self-made person to think that I don't have to do this part of the deal. I don't have to do that part of the deal. I can hire these people to do that. And at first you look at it and you go, man, that's a lot of money. And then you look at it and go, but I bought back a day and a half of my time. And in that day and a half, I can do this and, and I can really maximize what I'm doing. Are you looking for true personal freedom? The freedom to design a life you truly desire? Then you're absolutely in the right place. True personal freedom comes from when you take 100% responsibility and control of your money and your mind. Here, you're going to learn ideas, tips, and wisdom that's going to help you bridge the gap from where you are now to your dream life in the future. My name is Randy Wilson, and welcome to the Rich Mind Podcast. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Rich Mind Podcast. And today, I have another fantastic guest. I have with us today, Shannon Robnett. Shannon is from Boise, Idaho. He is a successful syndicator, a real estate developer, a real estate investor. He's actually even a pilot, if you can imagine that. They actually let him up in the sky to fly around with, with us. Yeah, can you imagine that? Yeah, when you get to know here uh, from Shannon here, you're going to understand kind of why I'm even saying that. But yeah, Shannon's just a great guy. Uh, we met a couple of years ago on the summit uh, uh, with Belize and the real estate guys down in Belize, the summit on Satan. And he's just a fantastic human. He's a lot of fun to be with. I'm super excited about this conversation. So Shannon, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Randy. It's always good to see you. Yeah. So can you take just a few minutes? Can you give everybody a little bit of, uh, I told everybody you were a pilot there, but is there yeah. other things about you? Can you just give everybody a little bit of, of background about you? Yeah. You know, I, I grew up in a household uh, that resembled uh, the poor dad household in, in Kiyosaki's book. My parents were talking real estate dinner table all the time. And uh, I wanted to go to college and I wanted to get a degree. Uh, wasn't able to do that. Something about having to show up every day and pay attention in class just didn't fit for me. But I'm a second generation builder developer and a fourth generation realtor. And I've been involved in construction and development for over 28 years. Um, and it wasn't until about three years ago that I really got into syndication because the projects we were doing were larger than single check writers wanted to participate in, at least in terms that I was willing to, uh, to take. And uh, but I've I've built everything from police stations to hospitals to uh, schools, uh, city halls, uh, fire stations, uh, and just about everything in between. And so my my resume on that side is is pretty strong. And then when we got into capital raising, it was easy to kind of create that story. But that's just kind of uh, you know my deal. And yes, I I'm a third generation pilot too. So we kind of my son is a fifth generation realtor, fourth generation pilot. You know. Uh, we're just kind of generational people, I guess, Randy. That's awesome. So in case anybody isn't familiar with the term syndication or syndicator, I know, I think that we've maybe discussed it before, but since you kind of brought that up with your, your story there, can you give just a yeah. little bit of feedback or background as far as what that is or, or you know I mean? Kind of help some people connect some dots there. You know, the, the, the easiest way to explain it is just syndicator is a fancy word for partnership. And really what happens is you have someone who is going to do all the work. Right. And, and and this is where a lot of partnerships tend to fall apart is there's not a clear definition of what the work is. Yes, Randy, you and I are going to go into businessman and we're going to do this and you're going to do this and I'm going to do that. Well, 
in real estate or in investing, syndication is an opportunity for people who have capital to partner with people who have business experience and, and deal flow. And so as a passive investor in that, you have capital, you're looking for tax advantages, you're looking for cash flow, you're looking for appreciation. And in my line of work, I'm building buildings, I'm developing multifamily projects, we're doing industrial, uh, and we're able to put that capital to work in a way that allows you to maximize your returns while minimizing your efforts. So if you happen to be a person with a high net worth uh, or a you know, a, a high uh, W-2 job that keeps you busy and you don't want to get into being a property manager and trying to find deals and you just want to do your job that you're really good at, then partnering with somebody in a syndication is an opportunity to do that. And um, it, it really is a great vehicle because it allows people to use their expertise to make the money that they want to put into deals that allow someone else to use their expertise to make the money they want. I love that. So the idea of just partnership, right? Yeah. A lot of times we can get stuck in the idea that we have to do it all on our own, right? We have right. to go out there and find the deal, package the deal, yeah. fund the deal, operate the deal, right? That's kind of the, the yeah. a lot of times we're, we're fed those ideas. And this is actually the complete opposite, right? You're partnering with Absolutely. people with expertise that have other expertise and friends and things. And then you're coming together for, as a collective for a win-win all the way around. Well, and if you really think about it, you know, if, if you're a, if you're a doctor, uh, and, and you're making three or four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars a year. You can't afford to be a real estate investor full time. It's really difficult, especially in the beginning, because you have things that you need to take care of. You've got overhead. Uh, you've got a staff that you've got to employ. By the time you get done with all that, you've worked your forty or fifty hours a week. You've got this income. You've got a tax problem. For you to go become another expert in that area is going to seriously diminish your practice and, and what you're making there. So this is an opportunity for you to continue to do what you do, partner with people that help you find, identify, invest, receive all the benefits that real estate and other investments can have for you uh, while still maintaining your high level of, uh, of personal uh, income. That's super exciting. So that's where I'm super excited to have you on the show. Share your knowledge, share your wisdom yeah. with, with the listeners because, yeah, it's super valuable. Just understanding that that's even a possibility can be eye-opening to folks. And I hope that that will uh, uh, resonate with some people. So let's dive into the questions here real quick. I always okay. love to dig into these to kind of get a little bit more, uh, little more texture to who you are, kind of where you've been, that kind of thing. And the first question is, who has had the biggest influence on your life? You know, it's my parents. Um, you know, I mean, I... I even told Robert Kiyosaki that his book was pretty unimpressive to me because it had just explained my childhood. You know, I didn't realize what I was observing at the dinner table. You know, hey, I was talking to the Smiths and they're, you know, wanting to sell their house and move their business past the mashed potatoes. You know, that was my normal evening. And yet when I when I read that book, I was 19 years old and I'm like, why is this book changing the world? Why is everybody so up in arms about this book? But I didn't realize, I mean, my kids you know, or, or me as a kid, I, I listen to my parents talk about 1031s, probably like Charlie Sheen's kids saw him buying Coke, you know, it was just the normal thing to do, you know, and yet I grew up in that and it was just my normal. And what I got away from when I started being 25, 27 out on my own, I started to see the 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 knowledge that I gained that was second nature to me as a kid was imperative to my survival and, and you know, my journey 
uh, that that's put me where I'm at today. Absolutely. So in that journey, I know that I guarantee there's been some ups and some downs, which kind of yeah. leads us into the second question then is what's yeah. been your biggest challenge and what is it that you've learned from that challenge? You know, um, I think my biggest challenge in, in I think most small business owners, medium sized business owners can attest to this. Uh, the best, the biggest challenge is, is the, the human factor, the employee, you know, um, you know, when you, when, when you rely on others, um, you give them the opportunity to fail you. And when you, when your, your business is only as good as your weakest link, um, you can be challenged to grow in areas that your, your business is demanding because the personnel is not there. Um, and it will always uh, show you, um, you know, business will always show you where your weaknesses are. And so the biggest challenge is always just to make sure you've got the right people. Uh, you pay well for them. You make sure that they're loyal, uh, those kinds of things, because, you know, that will absolutely make and break your business. That's awesome. Yeah. So the people, the partnerships, right? Not only are you partnering absolutely. with people on the outside, but then your internal partnerships yeah. are just as important, if not more important, because without absolutely. them, your operations are going to suffer for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So. One thing that I always love to do is try to, you've got uh, kids, my kids are in their 20s, you've got younger kids as well. So one thing I always try to do is try to give back as much as we possibly can, right? You mentioned about having uh, in your household growing up that talks about 1031 exchanges and just the business lifestyle. Is there anything you can think of that you wish you could have given yourself back in when you were 20? Some Just a nugget of wisdom, something you can share with your younger self. It's that, that old saying that, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Is there anything that you can think of today, knowing what you've learned in your journey that you wish you would have known when you were 20? Yeah, well, the first thing I would have done is gone and got a job. You know, I've, I've never had a job in my adult life. I've always worked for myself um, and, you know, run my own companies, but I, I never saw systems. I never saw, you know, it would have been awesome to have gone to work for another developer or another builder um, and figured out how they structured things, how they did things. You know, I say this often, every dollar I've made came from a mistake. Right. I learned everything the hard way. I mean, I got the knots on my on my head and the welts on my back to prove it. And if I would have put my pride aside and instead of always being my own man, gone to work for somebody else, seen what they know, learned from them, picked up the things that were great about their business and the things that I would probably change about their business and then brought that to my own at some time in my 30s. I have no doubt, absolutely no doubt whatsoever, I would be farther along than I am now. And uh, you mentioned it earlier in the show about, you know, um, uh, you know, doing things your own way. And, and there's a lot to be said about that. But at the, the other side of that coin is there is so much to be said about learning from the mistakes of others and, and learning from people who have been down that road and taken that journey that you've, you don't have to go yourself. You don't have to take every lump on your own. So is there any particular systems that you've learned in your uh, journey as far as your development? as far as your personal, uh, not personal development, but your uh, business development, your real estate development pieces? Is there anything in particular that you have learned that uh, has been instrumental in, in your growth from? You know, you one of the things now? that I'm learning uh, as I approach 50 is that um, you don't have to do it all yourself, like you said, right? I mean, some of the things that I can do, somebody else can do better, Right. And just because you can do it cheaper, cheaper does not equal better, right? And so I can do it 
myself and I can do it cheaper, but it doesn't necessarily mean I can do it better. And if I'm really looking for optimum results, which in real estate and investing, it's return on investment. And I look at it and I could go, man, I could do it cheaper. I could do it faster. I could do it this, I could do it that, but I can't do it better, which means that I can't make as much money. Why would I do that? And it's a really, that's a tough thing for me as a, as a, as a self-made person to think that I don't have to do this part of the deal. I don't have to do that part of the deal. I can hire these people to do that. And at first you look at it and you go, man, that's a lot of money. And then you look at it and go, but I bought back a day and a half of my time. And in that day and a half, I can do this and, and I can really maximize what I'm doing. I talk with people all the time about maximizing what they do to allow them to generate income through their day jobs to invest, to, to get to their retirement. And yet, for a long time in my own life, I didn't practice that, right? I mean, I was, I was, the, I was the preacher. I was letting you know what you got to do not to go to hell. And here I was doing all the things that were, in a lot of cases, very detrimental to my business because I wasn't focused on the fact that I can do it, but should I? Absolutely. There again, giving up that control sometimes yeah. is the most difficult thing to do in the wide world as a business owner. But at the same time, it's it can speed up the process of acceleration so much more. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and then the other thing that you can do is you can eliminate some of the bad habits in your company by partnering with companies who do have the systems figured out, that do have the the connections, you know, uh, that do have the ability to pull in uh, major players in different markets that you can't access. And there's a lot of that that comes from collaboration and from partnership that comes through that ability to not be always the single answer, the only answer to all your problems. I know you network a lot, right? You're always at different events. That's where we met, right? So the importance of that even, right? Meeting the people, getting in the right rooms. That's something I advocate a lot here on the show uh, to the listeners. And maybe you could speak to that as well. You you travel more than I do. And I feel like I'm at a lot of different things, but you're part more to trade and that kind of thing. But at at the same time, can you speak to the importance of getting in the rooms, shaking the hands, meeting the different individuals, even if it's from different walks of life? It's like you and I. We don't do the same things, but at the same time, we've hit it off. We've made, you know, a relationship. We've yeah. we've helped each other. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I do. I travel to at least two events a month. Uh, usually I try to get to three uh, because it's it's not what you know, it's who, right? And I, I can tell you this, hands down, uh, the, the things that have come about in my life have become, have come because of the relationships, not necessarily my primary knowledge. Now, my primary knowledge was able to engage in the conversation, but it was only after I knew the people, after I'd met the people, after I talked with the people. And, you know, the reality is you can learn so much when you're trying to be a student. It's really hard for you to learn when you're trying to be the teacher. And if you're in the room and you're the smartest guy in the room, you're in the wrong room. You need to be in a room full of people that are way smarter than you. Number one, hopefully somebody will take a picture of you, of you in that room full of smart people. And if you're, if you're not saying anything, they will make the assumption that you're as smart as those other people, right? And so when you've done that and you've got that figured out, then you're going to be able to put yourself in the position that now you're learning from them. Now you're able to mentor with them. You know, now you're able to, to learn what they know, take that shortcut. And if you're not showing up for that, where are you going to get that information? You're going to get that information from a book? I mean, you can, but where's the practical application? 
Where's the where's the connection? Where's the ability to pick up the phone and call someone that has that particular experience or meet someone that knows someone? I mean, I'm headed back next week to a deal in Nashville on a guy that I had no clue even existed on this planet uh, eight months ago that I've connected with through another person that I if I hadn't gone to events, I wouldn't know this person. I mean, that's a you know, it's a, a 15 million dollar deal. Uh, I got another deal happening in Houston that the financing is a complete slam dunk because of an introduction I was made through another person at a different event. And it's just these kinds of things. And you can't absolutely cannot put a price on it. And if you're looking at it saying, I, where's my ROI at the end of this event, you're probably looking at it wrong, right? But when you're going to those kinds of things and you're, and you're engaging with the people that are doing what you're doing, even at your level or a higher level, you're talking with the people that understand what your struggles are, understand what your uh, what your options are, and and have been down a path from a different angle. It's amazing what you can come away with at the end of a weekend. And I can attest to that 100. Like yeah, I said, that's that kind of goes along with how we've met. So right. the idea then, Shannon, is when you say somebody is. Okay, listening to us and saying, great, that sounds great. I'm going to try to get into more rooms, more events. We're a little bit more seasoned, right? We've had more opportunities to get in the rooms. Do you have any uh, strategies? And maybe that's not, maybe that's a little bit more of a harsh word than what I'm looking for. But just when you show up in a room that you don't know anybody, do you have any advice as to how do you begin conversations with folks? Do you, does that make any sense? As far as like, if you're showing up in a brand new room that, that you're not familiar with anybody that's there. Do you have any advice as far as to how do you get started with starting some conversations with folks to, to be able to break the ice, to be able to have those conversations and start making those relationships? Any ideas about that at all? You know, um, I don't like, I, I, I'm naturally a shy person. I don't like, I like sitting in the back. I like leaving early. You know, I don't like engaging people. I don't like asking them for a favor. I don't like talking to them. Um, but, you know, the thing that's made it really easy for me is practice but also to, to, to ask people about themselves. You know, in Dale Carnegie's book, he talks about in How to Win Friends and Influence People, he talks about, it, you know, the people that are the best conversationalists when asked afterwards are the people that ask about you, the people that engage you, that, that want to know more about you. And the reality is if you approach that room like a Rolodex and you're there to meet people for their ability to help you later, their ability to be a piece of your puzzle later, you have to know who's in the room. You have to know what they do. You have to know what uh, what they're looking for. You know, I have a gentleman uh, that is is getting ready to come on with us full time that that called me out of the blue. He moved here from New Zealand, found uh, my podcast in, in New Zealand somehow, uh, was listening to that, realized we were, you know, I lived in the city that he was going to come uh, live in with his new bride. And he has, he, he has spent all of his time figuring out what I do. And when he walked into my office, he knew exactly how he could fit into my organization. And so he was able to, through figuring out about me, was able to find the niche that he would fit in great. And his resume came through the door, perfect for the spot I had, right? 
And so if you look at it that way, that you're not interviewing that person on how you can give them your deal or sell them your coaching program or get them to buy a copy of this or do that or invest over here, but you're looking at it from the place that you can come in and say, I want to know how I can help you. Well, then that person does two things. They'll tell you, number one, and then you can do what Russ and Robert say, be important to important people. You can also come in and you can learn about them and see how they do what they're doing. And you can then figure out where you can introduce them to somebody else that might have what they were talking about wanting, even if you don't. And then that person will feel like they owe you one. And it's always great to have people owe you one, right? Because then they're, hey, you know that time I hooked you up with that really great deal? Yeah, man, I never forgot that. I'm looking for a X, Y, and Z, right? That's how it works, right? That reciprocal yeah. part, showing up, trying to add value first Absolutely. without anything in an expectation in return. Absolutely, That's how I have approached showing up. And I can tell you that folks that it's been the return on that. You can't put a number to it because no. you don't know exactly what that means. But right. for example, even, even us, Shannon, you reached out with an opportunity for me to try to help someone that you knew. Yep. That whether I did or not, you know, that remains to be seen. But the point is, is that we're helping each other help others, which yeah. is going to at some point come back. And you never return. know who that person knows that will be able to help you at some point. Absolutely. And and it's that, you know, uh, giver's gain is the is the theme of BNI, which is a business networking uh, group. But it's that whole thought process of if you're walking into the room thinking how you can sell this to somebody, you're never going to win like you can if you walk into a room and say, how can I solve 300 people's problems. How can I help every single one of these people? Because at that level, you're connecting with them on a level that matters. And that's where the return comes from. You mentioned the ROI from the investment, right? Because that's basically what it is. When you invest the time and the energy and the money to show up at these events, Russell Gregg, part of the real estate guys, he talks about one thing that always resonated with me is that you cannot, it's not what the event costs you. It what costs you by not being in the room is what's important. Yeah. And I understand that folks, when they're first hearing these types of things, they might get to have a little pushback because sometimes the dollar amounts can be a little more or because the, the time constraints could yeah. be a little bit more challenging. But at the end of Absolutely. the day, you can't put a price tag on the ability to uh, shake hands, meet folks, great people from all over the country, all over the world. Uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Totally agree. Absolutely. So one thing that I know that being a developer, you've got your pulse on what's going on. You have to, right? I mean, things are trying to. Yeah, well, I'm sure it's happening fast and furious with everything that's going on in the world. So one thing I wanted to kind of just pick your brain on. And so part of the the conversation I like to have in the or on the podcast is just the financial education piece, right? Just trying to keep with the basics for myself, but at the same time, trying to go as deep as I possibly can to try to help folks navigate kind of the uncertain times that we're uh, kind of going through. I know you were in business and have been in business for quite some time and went through 2008. Uh, you know, all of those challenges that that arose that, you know, we might be experiencing similar. So I just wanted to get your opinion. Do you have any feedback or any ideas of kind of what you're seeing right now, at least out there in the Boise area for yourself? Well, we're in, we're in Washington, Idaho, Texas, Florida, um, looking at a couple other markets as well. But, you know, the thing that I'm seeing that is very, very dissimilar uh, to 2008, it, it, it is a market slowdown. There is a market correction. Though That is really, to, in my opinion, where the similarities end. 
Um, we have a housing shortage that was created out of the lack of liquidity in uh, financial institutions in 9, 10, 11, and 12. Uh, and so we underbuilt what was necessary. So when you look at when you look at good, strong markets, when you look at Florida, uh, when you look at Texas, when you look at, you know, like Austin in particular, where you have, you know, a lot of, um, uh, you know, Tesla moving to Austin, you have, um, you know, things expanding in Austin. Um, you're seeing that the housing shortage is now showing up there. You know, when you look at areas like Detroit, you know, you have not a lot going on in Detroit and there's not a lot of demand there, but there's still fairly decent trade of the class C and D apartments uh, that are that are happening and, and there will be some growth there. But what we have now in 2008, we had an equilibrium between supply and demand. And then when people were losing their houses, you know, um, what, what a lot of your listeners might not know is that the foreclosure rate in 2010 was less than 6%. It was up 3%, 2.5% over what it used to be, what the normal is of 3%. But what happened in, in conjunction with that is the liquidity crisis that happened where banks quit lending. They had bad assets on their books. They had things that were making them uh, fearful of the FDIC. And uh, when all of that stuff cataclysmically slammed together, and then we had the world uh, financial market meltdown because of Lehman Brothers and a lot of that other stuff, then all of the ability to borrow money went away. You know, everybody's saying that our market, oh my gosh, I can't believe how expensive money is. Randy, I've done business for almost 30 years, and I've only had two years in my whole career that have had interest rates under 5% for any length of time, you know? Uh, on the development side, uh, on the residential side, I think we had uh, rates of five percent from about seventeen to twenty, uh, middle of twenty-two, and then we exceeded that. But it was a very, very short window. So when people are looking at it, going, "Oh my gosh, I can't believe how high rates are," they're normal, you know. And so when you were looking at the lens of I got involved in in two thousand and eighteen in 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 industrial development or, you know, in multifamily investing or whatever, you you see a very narrow window. But when you look at historically what interest rates are, they're still very good. And it's all about making the cash flow or the arbitrage between what you bought it at, what you financed it at, and what the rents are. And so when we see really strong housing demands, we, we're somewhere between four and seven million units uh, of housing short in America. And obviously, like I touched on, places like Detroit don't need anymore. Places like Chicago, they don't need any more housing right now. But you've got places like Florida where the people from Chicago are moving to. You've got places like Austin, Texas, Dallas, you know, uh, Tennessee market is exploding. North Carolina market is exploding. And they not only don't have enough product for what the growth is in there, they've got a lot of people importing from other um, areas that are causing that growth. And so what you're seeing is you're seeing demand. And supply and demand, you know how that ratio works. The more there's de demand and the lower the supply is, the higher the price. And there comes that equilibrium where once you get to that medium where you've got supply and demand in check, which I think is still three years at a minimum, three years out. Uh, and my friend Ken McElroy would agree with us that it's, uh, that it's at least three years out for supply and demand to meet. When that happens, then you start to see maybe a, a real softening and a slowdown in the market. But until you see that, you have velocity. And, and as long as you have velocity in conjunction with funding, 
you'll see deals continue to get done. And when deals are still getting done, money's still being made. And uh, it's really hard to argue with those fundamentals. So the piece that you mentioned there, and you kind of touched on at the end of, as well, is that the funding to me is just, it's just as yeah. much an important piece as the supply and demand, right? Because yeah. without funding, deals can't get done. Are you seeing anything? You mentioned about 2008, where 2009, 10, as far as the funding dried up along with the you know, all the mess that was going on. Are you seeing anything out there right now with funding from institutions at all with uh, getting the capital needed to purchase these deals and make them get them done? No, I mean, I I think there's a lot of people that got into deals in 2000, uh, in 2020, in 2021, that they're going, man, I'm losing money. Well, you, you paid too much for it. You didn't lock in your interest rate. You know, you did some basic things that you shouldn't have done. And now you're gonna pay a financial price for that. But that has nothing to do with the liquidity. You can still get loans. I mean, you you can still get lots of financing options available to you. It's just a matter of can you substantiate the cash flow? Can you reach, you know, everybody's come up with this new term to them of the DSCR lending. We've always had debt service coverage ratios in all of our loans. But when you're applying 2.5% interest, it's not hard to meet that debt service coverage. But all that means is that the bank wants to see that if you're you owe them a dollar, you've got a dollar twenty-five in rents coming in to make sure that they can get paid because they don't want your asset back, right? And so when you look at how that balances and you look at what's going on, there are people that overpaid and there was prices that were too high, and people were able to do it because the funding parameters were there that are no longer there. Real estate's a constantly changing environment, but the rules stay the same. You take your income, you take your rents minus your expenses, and that's your net profit. And as long as that is part of what's going on and your lending fits inside that parameter, you'll still see deals get done. So I think when, when you know, we're starting to see some multifamily assets come back uh, to the bank, there was a large foreclosure auction of $225 million worth of real estate uh, in Houston about two weeks ago, kind of shook uh, the multifamily market. It was a syndicator that had been in business less than three years. He'd owned the assets less than a year. Uh, but he had he had violated those fundamental lending laws that are the CYA of keeping your assets, right? And uh, we'll, we'll leave all those puns all wrapped up in one little spot. We won't unravel those right now, will we, Randy? <laughs> no, but, you know, the, the, um, the thing is, if you understand how underwriting plays into this, funding is not an issue. So then... I would assume somebody with your experience, your backgrounds, you're seeing these opportunities are going to start coming in and bubbling to the surface, so to speak. Yeah. Is that kind of what you're looking for in the next two to three uh, in the different spaces, whether it be multifamily or or anything for that matter? I don't want to put words yeah. in your mouth. Is, there, is that kind of the opportunity that you're you're kind of sitting back? Not only are you doing deals, I'm not saying you're sitting on your hands doing nothing, but at the same oh, no, time, I couldn't do that. yeah, you're thinking about uh, what's coming down the pipe, right? I assume. Yeah. You know, I am. And, you know, there's still good deals to be done. I mean, we, we've we got, uh, you know, about 700 units in planning that we'll probably bring through the pipe in the next 18 months for starting on multifamily. Uh, we've got two large industrial developments that we're, we're getting ready to launch. We're buying cash flowing assets. Uh, currently, we love the Houston market for cash flowing industrial assets. But we are starting to see some where, you know, um, when you look at, let's take it back to to maybe a, a level that your audience could really identify with, a three-bedroom, two-bath house, 
at at two hundred thousand dollars at at five percent is going to run you uh, a mortgage payment of about seventeen hundred fifty dollars. That same house now is four hundred thousand dollars in my market, four hundred fifty thousand dollars. The interest rate is now seven percent, and that payment is now about thirty four hundred bucks. It's the same asset, right? So what what's going to naturally happen is in order for the average person that wants and needs that three-bedroom, two-bath house to afford it, the lending rate is going to put downward pressure on the price to bring down the payment because America thinks in payment plans, right? When was the last time you went on a car lot and the guy told you that car is $42,500? He told you that car is 431 bucks a month, right? right? So we, we run that, that thought process in our mind, except for when we come to buying assets, and then we go, well, I got to buy the whole thing. No, you don't. You're getting lending involved on it. So when you really break that down and you say, what's causing prices to come down, it's interest rates and the cash flow that's left in the middle isn't enough to debt service. So if you really want to sell and I really want to buy, but I still have to borrow, your price has to come down for me to be able to afford it in that matrix, right? And so when you see that come together, you're just offsetting some of the 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 market conditions. And so you're going to see assets lessen in price while still increase in rents because that's where the funding is happening in in the in the mortgage in the middle that's allowing people to transact. So people that paid, you know, a, a I sold an asset in January of last year at a 3-7 cap. It was ridiculous, right? I I, I mean I couldn't have afforded to keep it. Now that asset's probably a five cap based on lending. It doesn't mean they lost value. They still have the same cash flow if they locked in their in, the, in their lending, which I know they did. So they're fine. But the other person that didn't, they've had a real recession in their cash flow that may be costing them money every month because of their lending choices, that now that asset's going to come back on the market and be able to be repositioned, even though the rents are still there. It's just the cash flow is mitigated. So will it be a matter of pain points, meaning how long that that syndicator or or person that's running that deal can hang on, right? Yeah. Hanging on for dear life. Yeah. Uh, and that's where the patience comes in, right? The ability to sit on the sidelines, be active, right? But at the same time, be prepared to solve that person's problem because that's basically right. what you're doing, right? You're helping this person out of a problem that, yeah, it has to make sense for both sides, right? He's not going to be able to get away or she, he or she, uh, scot-free. But at the same time, yeah, it's got to make sense for the person that's taking over that asset to make sure that it's going to be able to cover that debt like you're talking about as well with the higher interest rates. Well, and if you look at that that deal in Houston that got repossessed, you know, we were looking at it and it looks like one of the assets was purchased in August of last year. And for that to already have gone through a foreclosure auction means that he never even made a full payment, not one. So by the time he closed on it, he had a negative cash flow, right? And whether that was through occupancy trends, whether that was through, you know, his business plan was, was you know, um, not accurate, what, whatever it was, I don't know. And it's, and it's irrelevant. But the point is, when you, when you put that together, you know, uh, there's a lot of people that won't touch a deal unless it cash flows day one. There was a lot of people in 19, 20, 21, 22 that were buying assets that wouldn't cash flow until year two or three. They were planning on doing a cash out refinance, getting all the investors' money back. And you can do amazing things with a spreadsheet that don't have any connection in reality. If you want an example of that, look at the news, right? <laughs> um, 
I mean, just because it's on paper doesn't mean it's real, but the reality of it is it has to cash flow it today and it needs to have certain parameters around it that are real and that are realistic. And when you put all that together, you will get a very strong understanding of what this asset should be priced at and what this asset will do for you or could do to you if you don't really understand your underwriting. 100%, which almost brings us back 100% full circle from the very beginning of the conversation as far as the partnerships, right? Yeah. Knowing knowing who you were getting in partnerships with, right? Yeah. Going with somebody that has a track record. Right. It's not going to be perfect all the time, right? You've got to understand yeah. that investment investing is is risky, right? But can be. finding the right person that's been through the ups, the downs, seen different cycles, seen different interest rates, right? All the things that we're talking about, right, is crucial. Yeah. to having any kind of success. I would assume there again, like I said, yeah. bringing that back around full circle. But, you know, just to, to kind of add another layer to this, my dad was building houses in the late 70s when interest rates were 12 and, or were 18%. And he was still able to build houses and make money. Why? Because people wanted the house that bad. Was it slower than it had been? Sure. Did it accelerate when interest rates came down? Of course. But it didn't mean that nothing happened, you know? Uh, and so when you look at those market cycles, it's about being in the right position. And, you know, I know a lot of people that didn't buy anything last year. You know, I know a lot of people that just said, I cannot afford to, because in their model, it didn't work. And that doesn't mean you go buy it and make a new model that looks good enough that this will work because it may not be based in reality. 100%. That's awesome, Shannon. I really appreciate everything you're saying so far. Is there any other type of thing that's really been, you know, whether it's in your business or things you're noticing with uh, different things that you're going to, right? Kind of the talk of the, of the uh, rooms that you've been in to, to share with the listeners that would almost just kind of put the icing on the cake as far as everything we've been discussing so far. You know, I, uh, if we want to stay on the topic of where pricing is going, I, I think we've seen, you know, a, a 10 to 15% drop in overall pricing. I know in our market, uh, we have uh, on single family homes and on multifamily. But, you know, when you look at the fact that over the last four years, we've seen a, I think it was a 47% price increase in single family homes in 36 months, right? But if anybody was to apply that to, let's call it Apple stock or Tesla stock, and it went up 47% in, in a three-year period and dropped 15%, of course, the news would sensationalize it a little bit, but your overall return is is not hammered if you've been in it long-term. Even if you bought it at the peak of the market, you only lose money when you sell. It's just a question of how long have you prepared yourself to be able to hang on through this next time period. And I think a lot of people are waiting for 40% discounts. I don't think we'll see those because the supply and demand is going to interrupt that. Um, if we were if we were oversupplied again, I think you would see that. You know. Um, the Phoenix market in 2008, the Vegas market in 2008, they saw 40 to 60% drop in pricing, but they were oversupplied and the bottom fell out and there was no liquidity. So they saw that race to the bottom because there was nobody to buy the houses. Here, we've got plenty of people around with dry powder that are ready to pick these up. It's just a matter of how far are they going to go until they fit back into my parameters and my business model that then I can take them on, Right. So that's where your two to three year somewhat, I mean, I know that's probably more of a, an idea or a theory in your own mind. That's kind of what you're thinking for yourself as far yeah. as that two to three year time point. You know, in the, in the, in the brilliant business minds that are even 
you know, farther up the food chain than myself say that, you know, we're in the second inning of, a, of an eight in, or nine inning ball game, you know, uh, and, and you're talking about the seventh inning is when all the banks get the assets back, right? So we're still going to see deals sweeten up. We're going to see things come come along. Uh, but again, if it doesn't make sense and it doesn't cash flow, if it doesn't meet your investment parameters, um, you really probably shouldn't be forcing a deal right now just to have done a deal. So I know I'm huge, and I know you are as well, on the education piece when it yeah. comes to, so that's the idea, right? You've, right. This is the time to get educated. If if yeah. what we're speaking about today, folks, is is somewhat higher level for you, that's the whole point. You need to learn to understand what these topics are, what these what this discussion even means. Uh, Shannon threw around cap rates, uh, DSCRs all kinds of terms that if you're in the real estate space or if you're interested in the real estate space, you need to learn what that is and what those terms mean. Uh, we did cover a little bit of that today, but the whole point is that now's the time to get educated. And I know you're big on that as well with your social media. You're huge on social media. Yep. Uh, you've got your own podcast. Can you talk a little bit about that, how you're trying to help folks get educated yeah. and even get prepared for what's coming up next? You know, my my thing is, I truly believe that 2008 would not have happened if we had a better educated investor. If people really understood the fundamentals of investing, which aren't taught in school, um, you know, Morgan Stanley, uh, Charles Schwab, those guys are not there to help you. They're there to, to pillage you. Um, and so when you really look at what a, an education you need... Uh, you know, I, I was talking uh, with somebody else that uh, in their $100,000 401k, they'd lost $30,000 this year. And I just thought to myself, how many events could you have gone to? How much education could you have bought for that? And not only still been in the same financial position, but had the knowledge to never be in that position again. And yet people continue to choose to, you know, elect to put that away and do that and put it off on somebody else to make that instead of really educating themselves and understanding the fallacies behind what they're being sold. Because, you know, when you look at how that all comes together, if you're not educating yourself, somebody's educating you. And I would, I would argue that if you're not educating yourself, someone is indoctrinating you, right? Because uh, it, it, it's, it's, there's no two ways about it. There is no neutral ground. And so if you're not taking that on yourself, you can't expect anyone else to do it in your best interest. They'll do it in their best interest. But if you want to take control of that and understand it and then decide what is in your best interest, the only way to do that is to educate yourself. So I do a podcast as well. It's called the uh, the Rubnet Real Estate Rundown. Um, and it is for, you know, we get into some some more advanced topics. We get into kind of the the, the, the level of the market where it's at. and that's because I truly believe that my give back is to help educate. And if there's anything I can do to help you along your real estate journey, I believe that that ripple effect of one investor, two investors, four investors, it becomes something. And, and out of that something, you can really make change. And that change in the market, that safety in the market is what creates stability of the market. You know, fear is what drives our markets up and down and sideways 80% of the time. And yet we we fear what we don't know. And so that education piece should be in there very prominently to make sure that we're all aware of what we're doing and why we're doing it. 100%. So the fear, and you said that, right? The fear is because of the unknown. And once yeah. you become aware that there are different ways of doing it, even the discussion that we've had today, once you become aware that, that it's possibility, 
get yourself educated, you can take different action, which is going to create a different result, which then you can begin to give back, which then is exactly. going to create that ripple effect, right? It just, it goes on exactly. and on and on and on and on, which is why it's so much fun. Yeah. Well, and then, and then when you can see the the difference that you've made in someone's life, you know, you see where somebody took that little bit of knowledge and added that with somebody else that Chuck's something else that Chuck said, or, or that, you know, Sarah said or whatever, and they're able to grow themselves and then look at that ripple effect of who they can affect. Right. You just never know where it's going to end up. And that's what you don't, you really don't. That's what makes even doing this, right. Having these conversations doing it, it's where it's so much fun because you just don't know where it's going to go. Even when I hit record today, I told you from the very beginning, I didn't know exactly where it was going to go, but I knew it was going to get exactly where it needed to be. And that's exactly what we've done. So I totally appreciate that. So, you know, Randy, if you, if you look at your own journey as well, right. Yeah. I mean, I, I know I met you two years ago, two years ago, this coming July, you would have never pictured yourself in this capacity. You would never have pictured your, your, uh, you know, your whole thing you're you you have completely rebranded yourself based on what you've educated yourself to be and you've become a much more enlightened person that now sees more clearly how to help and affect others you know and i've watched you on the on your journey and how you have grown but it's only after you've ingested the knowledge you know when you've you brought your kids to the summit and how they've ingested the knowledge you know and now they're making their own decisions and and I've watched you and your wife and the way that you guys have put this whole thing together and the thought process and everything that you're doing that's making this your reality based on how you see the world and how you've educated yourself. And now your choice is to is to reach out and to help others educate themselves, not because you're selling a product, but because you're trying to affect change at a grassroots level. And that is that is to be commended. Absolutely. hundred percent. I really appreciate that, Shannon. Come from you, man. That was that means a lot. Yeah, it's been it's been a fun journey. It's been a blast to take the things I'm learning and try to apply them in a ways that I can communicate them better, differently. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, bring on friends like you that can even take it that much that another step further. Yeah, uh, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, creating this podcast has probably been uh, one of the most fun things I've ever done. So yeah, I just appreciate you being willing to jump on with us and share a lot Always. of wisdom and knowledge that you've got. Definitely. Yeah. So if folks are like, okay, this Shannon guy, I need to figure out more what he's got as far as this real estate space and, and the teamwork and the partnerships and all that. You mentioned about your podcast, but what are the best ways? You're very active on socials and that type of thing. Where are the best place for people to learn more about Shannon? You know, the easiest place, I mean, you got to remember, I'm just a dumb contractor, but the easiest place for me to remember that is at shannonrobnet.com. You can go there. Uh, I've got a book list. I've got a book I'll send you. Uh, you can see what we're doing. You can see, uh, you can get involved in my podcast, uh, listeners there. You can also get a, on my calendar. I'd love to have an, uh, take a minute, get to know you, see what your investment goals are, see what I can do to shed knowledge on that. Love to give you 15 minutes of my time just to get to know you. And so it's just shannonrobnet.com. And, uh, you know, if you, if you punch it into Google, you'll find it. And uh, love to connect with your listeners for sure. Well, folks, take Shannon up on that. As you mentioned, we've met each other just a little less than two years ago. And I'll never forget when we did meet. Uh, it's just been a lot of fun. Every time we get a chance to be in the same room together, it's just like we just catch up like we've been long lost yeah. friends. Yeah. It's just a blast. So take him up on that. He sincerely means that. Uh, follow Shannon. He's very knowledgeable in the real estate space, in the business space, in the leadership space, in the, all of it. He's, he's the guy. 
so if you're looking for ways to increase your, your knowledge and your education, uh, I highly recommend uh, going to shanrobnet.com uh, and getting on any list that he's got, following him on the socials, and definitely uh, increasing your education as we move forward. So Shannon, dude, this has been fun. I appreciate your time today. Uh, I look forward to doing this again sometime soon. And the next time we get a chance to uh, meet up at the next conference, for sure. Absolutely, Randy. Honor and pleasure to join you. Excellent. So folks, go out there. Have a fantastic day. I hope you found value in this episode. And until the next time we get together, have a great day now. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining me on the Rich Mind Podcast. I hope you found a ton of value in this episode. If so, I'd really appreciate a five-star review. And you can also share it with your family and friends. And as my mentor, Jim Roden, shared with me, in order to have more, you must first become more. And in order to become more, you must work harder on yourself than you do on your job. So go out there today and work harder on yourself to become more and build the life of your dreams. Until next time, my friends. Yeah.